For those who have been redeemed, it is wonderful to rehearse, to make the theme of our life the redemption that we have found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Several years ago in Gaston, South Carolina, a small town in the Midlands, an old gentleman who had lived alone in a trailer, mobile home, on a pretty much an a, a unused lot. It didn't, wasn't well maintained. He passed away. And his family, uh, rather than, uh, well, there wasn't much to give away. There wasn't much to inherit. There wasn't much remaining. And so as they were disposing of the property, they ended up tearing the trailer down and hauling it off. But they took the contents out, and they carried it to one of the charity centers uh, there in the Midlands, uh, sponsored by the Lexington Baptist Association. And one of the things they took was an old sofa, and when they dropped it off, they said, we don't know if you can get any use out of this or not, but it was either here or the dump. And so here, see, somebody might could use it. Well, it was not in good shape. And the, 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 the um, benevolence organization that took it in, they, uh, they kind of cleaned it up as best as they could, and they noticed that there were a lot of lumps in the cushion. They thought, well, we'll recover it. You know, we've got some people who can recover it. And when they took the cushions apart, they found it stuffed with dollar bills, 20s, 50s, and 100s. This man had been collecting income for retirement, and rather than spending it on his home, and rather than spending it on himself, and rather than spending it in any way, he would band it up when the checks would come in, turn it into cash, band it up, and shove it into his sofa so that no one could take it away from him. Nobody knew where it was. And so the, uh, the first thought of the crisis center was joy. Look what we found. Uh, and, but they did recognize that it wasn't theirs. And so they contacted the family who had donated it. It came out to, by the way, just over $48,000 stuffed into this sofa. And they contacted, it made the news in the Midlands at the time. I was working at the Lexington Baptist Association. And they contacted the family. And, of course, the family was surprised and grateful, of course, that the money had come back, but really surprised. And one of the comments that they made, which I thought was just great and apropos today, is uh, if we'd have known it was worth that much, we'd have never given it away. Have you ever gotten rid of something and found out later it was valuable? Have you ever messed something up and found out later it was valuable? We are starting a new series in the life of the church. It's going to be for four weeks, the next four weeks. We're starting a series called Christ because he is our all in all. He's our life. Amen. Always start with Christ. We belong to him. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And yet we live in a culture that rejects truth and suppresses truth. And one of the primary means that it has corrupted the wonderful plan that God has for all of his creation is through the expressions of sexuality. And so we're going to look at Christ, culture, and sexuality. We're going to be looking as a primary text, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so you may want to go ahead and turn your Bibles here and put your finger in there, but we'll look at it in more detail in just a moment. But I want to give you kind of an understanding of what we're going to be doing. We're going to look this week at, 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 at some very key foundational truths. How do we know what to believe? In her book called The World Turned Upside Down, the Global Battle Over God, Truth, and Power, Melanie Phillips, a not-Christian English journalist 10 years ago, wrote, 
Society seems to be in the grip of mass derangement. There is a sense that the world has slipped off the axis of reason. Hadn't our world gone crazy? Aren't there ways that it just seems like the world has gone completely nuts? Many of the things that seem common or accepted today would have been rejected out of hand just a few years ago. Sacrificing a baby in the womb for the convenience of a parent. Now, that's been around for a few decades, but in the line of history, it's fairly recent. Other, well, not, there's nothing new under the sun. We'll get to that in a moment. Had you asked my mom and dad, um, what is a woman? They'll do you like you're nuts. And yet today we have medical doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, politicians, legislatures, and jurists who struggle over this simple question. Frankly, it may be worse than we're aware of. Just this weekend, I heard the phrase, drag nuns. I don't know if you guys follow professional baseball. It was in relationship to the Dodgers and some of the brouhaha that's been going on there. Uh, Don't look it up. I did. I am. And I'll tell you, it's kind of easy to chuckle, but I'm angry at the blasphemy that is celebrated in today's world. On one hand, it just kind of breaks your heart. And on the other hand, you want to be like Jesus in the temple and go knock something over. Uh, we've lost the sense. The world does not have to, they suppress the truth about God. They have no sense of who God is. Now, I know that there is, as Solomon has said, that there's nothing new under the sun. And the expressions of the depravity of the human heart have been with us since Genesis chapter 3. I'm aware. Babies were sacrificed to idols in the days of Egypt, in the, well, in the, in the days of, of the earliest days of Judaism when God established his people. Uh, and God meted out justice for that. Uh, there have been sexual sins from the time of Cain on. Um, But in our context today, I think it's pretty easy for us to think and to see that the world is going crazy. In Melanie Phillips' book, um, The World Turned Upside Down, she ends her introduction with a question. And here's what she says. How is anyone to work out who's right in such a babble of experts and with so much conflicting information? As I said, she's not a Christian. She's a non-practicing, agnostic Jewish person. And so her book doesn't turn people to God at all. But I want to tell you that there is a way to know what truth is, what is right, what is best for our culture, for our world. And so I guess one of the questions that I've been asked, because I've been talking about this series for several months now, um, why would you talk about sexuality in the church? I mean, it seems a little off topic, doesn't it? Uh, Isn't this a weird place to be talking about sexuality? Sexuality is, uh, this topic is timely and it's described and prescribed by Scripture. It's not just an awkward and difficult topic. It is often unpopular and to some people offensive. And so as we approach this, I want to be very careful in how we approach this. I want to be very compassionate in how we approach this. But I want to approach it with the conviction that God's Word And God's ways are absolutely perfect. And that God knew exactly what he was doing 
when he created and designed humanity in, in our total person, in our whole being. We do talk about sex and sexuality at church. We do win in how Scripture addresses it. And we do when the weight of our culture bears upon us. Um, do you guys get the Greenville News? Does anybody get the Greenville News? All right. Well, the three of us that get the Greenville News read this week that the Greenville Gay Men's Chorus, along with Columbia's Midlands Men's Chorus, will kick off Pride Month with Songs for Survival at the First Baptist Church of Greenville, South Carolina. The Gaslight Lounge and Grill is kicking off Pride Month with an unforgettable drag brunch experience. If you're not Baptist, celebrating God's queer children, a community worship service of pride is being held at Trinity Lutheran Church this month as well. You see, it's not only people who don't claim the name of Christ. It's people who claim Christianity who are wrong, who are not studying Scripture, who are not aware. Uh, and when we talk about hostility of culture and our interaction with culture, you guys may be familiar with the uh, case of the lady, I wrote her name down, I left it in my office, in Britain who was arrested for praying silently on the sidewalk outside of an abortion clinic in Britain. She was outside the buffer zone established by the law. They put a buffer zone around it. She was not in that. She was outside of it. The police came up. When asked what she was doing, she said, I'm praying. And he said, you need to leave. And she said, why? I'm not protesting. I'm not being intimidating. I'm not harassing anyone. I'm standing on the sidewalk with my head bowed. He said to her, you said you're engaged in praying, which is the offense. And she said, silent prayer. And he said, you were still engaging in prayer, which is the offense, and arrested her. And her case is pending in the UK right now. Do y'all, do y'all read stuff like this? Do you know our world seems to have just gone completely nuts in a lot of different ways? And so that's why this is appropriate. And this is timely. Now, in this series, we're going to look at several different things. Today is our foundation our authority, what the Bible has to say about how God has made us and that God does have a plan for us. And if we want to know truth, we go to our source of truth. We're going to be looking at other expressions of this in the coming weeks. Next week, we're going to look at God's design for a family and intimate relationships and the reasons. It's not just enough to say flee sexual immorality because the Scripture doesn't just say flee sexual immorality. It tells you why you're to flee sexual immorality, how you're to flee sexual immorality, and how you're to live wholly and completely dependent upon the person of Christ and experience all that God intends for you to experience as a believer in a world that does not believe. And so that's, we're going to be focusing on, on that next week. But the last two weeks, we're going to be looking at what the Scripture has to say about a contemporary issue that has just run rampant. We're going to look at uh, our identity, the identity that God has given to us. And have you guys heard the phrase transgenderism and gender-affirming uh, treatments. We're going to look at what's going on in our world and see what the scripture has to say about those. And the reason that's important is because we got to get it right. We got to get it right. 
The world would say your truth is not necessarily my truth. Why is my identity and my sexuality any of your business? And certainly why would a preacher talk about such things in church? And for those who believe, we have questions like, what do I say when I'm invited to a wedding between two people of the same sex? How do I respond when my son tells me he's really a girl or my daughter tells me she's really a boy? What happens when I'm arrested for praying silently as we just talked about in the vicinity of an abortion clinic? How am I to respond when I may be dismissed from my job, which has happened in the United States, if I do not affirm the equality, diversity, and inclusion standards my company has embraced? How do I respond when someone introduces themselves with their pronouns and expects me to use their pronouns? When the local public library has drag queen day, should I ignore it, protest against it, or God forbid, affirm it? What am I supposed to do? Ultimately, the question comes down to who do I believe? And because I believe this, how am I to respond? Or because this is truth, how am I to respond? Are you with me? Does this matter? It feels like we kind of took the air out of the room right there. Guys, this matters. It matters for us to know what truth is so we can live and walk in truth and we can glorify God with our bodies because we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And sexual immorality, sexual sin in the church is horrendous. And we're going to get into the reasons why and the impact that it has. But I will tell you that we have a role to penetrate the world. And we have a role to penetrate the world with truth and with grace and with love. We need to be able to stand for truth. And sometimes we engage the world with winsomeness and warmth. And sometimes we engage the world as a rod, as a spear, as a wall. And we say, here we stand And we're not going to be moved. So how do we walk that balance? That's that's our focus for the next several weeks. And so I want to tell you about yesterday real quick. Daniel and Oregon and I came out here to build a building. And I started to bring the instruction manual. When I printed it off, it was 118 pages. Now, the first five or six were basically, here's what not to do. But then we got to the plans, and the plans were, here's what to do. And they are pre-cut boards. You guys know how to use all of this stuff. It's like putting a puzzle together. And so we had to lay out all the pieces, and we began putting it together. And I was amazed at the detail of these instructions. It tells you which board to use, where to put it, and then it tells you where to drive the nails. And I'm thinking, who needs these kind of instructions? And then we started, and I'm thinking, I need these kind of instructions. <laughs> uh, the first point on your outline, by the way, these points are amazingly simple. I give in your bulletin mostly so you can take notes as the Lord speaks to your heart. But I just want to declare a truth. There is a God, and He is a creator God who has created us and designed us, and that's truth. I don't care whether you believe it, whether you don't believe it, you need to recognize, or we need to recognize, and certainly affirm that there is one God. We have a creator a creator who designed us, including our bodies. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, I'm going to reference this really quick. God speaks through Isaiah, and 150 years before Cyrus is ever born, Cyrus, pagan king of the Persians who ultimately allows the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. Cyrus, 150 years before he's born, pagan. God says, you're my anointed one. I'm going to use you for this purpose at this time. 
This pagan king is important in Jewish history. It was under his rules that the, the Jews were first allowed to return to Israel after 70 years of captivity. And here's what God writes about through Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah says. The Lord says to Isaiah when he's talking about Cyrus in Isaiah 45. And I'm just going to read a few of these verses. Verse 5, he says, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. And then he gives a warning. The creation, arguing with the creator. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among the earth and pots. Does the clay say to the one who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles, you could do a better job, is what he's saying. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, what, with what are you in labor? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? And here's the summary. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I command all their hosts. Here's, here's a point. For those who know and walk with God very clearly, we acknowledge the authority of God. Amen? But I want to tell you, God's still the authority whether you acknowledge Him or not. He created us. He designed us. He has a plan. He knows what truth is and what is right and what is good. And, of course, since, the, since Adam and Eve, the world has rejected God's truth and His authority. They disobeyed. Paul describes this in Romans 1 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Hallelujah, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of salvation unto all who believe. And so he begins with grace, but then he talks about the need for grace. Looking at those who have rejected grace. And he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. The, the picture of suppressing the truth is the truth is there. But they continue to just push it down. You guys, it's summer. You guys like going to the pool? You take a beach ball or an inflated ball and you push it under the water. What happens to it? You can hold it down as long as you can, but sooner or later it's going to pop right back up, right? God's truth is truth. And people, when it comes into their hearts, when it comes into their ears, when it comes into mind, they're like, oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't like that. That doesn't fit my worldview. And they press it down and press it down, yet God's truth remains constant. And it continues to put pressure on them in their minds and in their hearts and in their thinking. And yet they have rejected the truth. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than cr the creator. The issue is not acknowledging who God is. It's about who we worship. The second point on your outline is the world rejects truth. That's self-evident. The predominant thinking in our culture is that there's no creator. Billions of years ago, there was some sort of spark or something happened. And all of a sudden, all these things happened. And over a process of millions of years, all that is came into being. And I will tell you, if you look at the, the, just the, the simple statements of creation and the divine, a divine God who spoke things into being versus what the evolutionists teach, 
what they say is ridiculous. They say what we say is ridiculous. But what they say is, is it requires more faith than to believe that there's a holy God who spoke things into being. But if there's no creator, there's no designer. It's all trial and error. It's the adaptation in life of the adaptation, continual adaptation, survival of the fittest, you probably heard that, of, of, of life that, and matter that ev- has evolved over time. And if there's no creator, there's no moral guide or standard other than what each culture develops as their own norm. And so, therefore, there's no absolute truth. Truth is not centered in the giver of truth or even in scientific empirical evidence. Truth is what I want it to be, depending upon how I happen to feel at any particular time in my life. Does this sound familiar? What does this have to do with sexuality? Well, quite a bit. I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to start in verse 12 and read through verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 12 through 20. All things are lawful or permitted for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By the way, you need to circle that phrase. And God raises the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. We sang that. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now this text, I want you to know, you need to know, it's kind of confusing at the beginning. Are all things lawful? Is the stomach meant for food and food for the stomach? What, what, what's going on there? But before we can get into that, we need to understand where Paul's going. The destination, the goal of this journey is there at the end of this passage. You, if you come to Christ, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And what's the goal of this? Glorify God in your body. Honor God in your body. That's where we're going. Okay? You ready? Y'all are still breathing, right? It got really quiet in here. Okay. Because I want to make sure we understand the, the text. They were in Corinth. And in Corinth, sexual immorality was rampant. I don't know what their top ten sounded like, but do you know what our top ten sounds like? Billboard top ten music. I don't, they didn't have movies, obviously. But do you know what's shown on the theaters and what's popular in movies in our day? Would you say that sexual immorality is portrayed pretty much everywhere? And that it is rampant in our society. Uh, Not only was it rampant in their society, it was also part of their religious worship. Part of their religious worship was the ability to engage a, quote, temple prostitute in some of the temples of their area in Corinth where they were. And many of these believers in in Corinth had been saved out of that environment. And so Paul is coming back and having to instruct them 
about what is right, what glorifies God, and why it matters. And so that's what we're going to look at. But what he begins with is the phrases that were common in the day to rationalize sex as recreation. You understand that that is not what the Bible instructs. Uh, We think that sex is a gift from God for procreation, and I believe that's true. But I believe it's primarily a gift from God for unification, to unite a man and a woman physically, but far more than physically. But they had reduced it simply to recreation. How do we know? Here's what he says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. There's the statement they make, and here's his correction. Let's see if we can walk down these really quick. The topic is sexual morality. We're quick to recognize that there's something wrong with that statement. Are all things lawful for you when it comes to sexuality? No. Can, 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 is adultery wrong? Is incest wrong? Promiscuity wrong? Yes. Just ign- not a trick question. You can acknowledge it. So all things are not lawful, but their thing was, all right, I'm under grace. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. And there's a corrective. The conjunction there is a strong negative, but not all things are helpful. He repeats their rationalization. Well, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. He says, you say this, but here's the point. When you submit to this type of sin, it puts you under its control. It gets a mastery over you. It becomes a dominating impact in your life. Is that true or is that not true? Is pornography addictive? Yes. Is promiscuity and unfaithfulness addictive? Are people controlled by physical impulses, which takes us to the next point. When it comes to mastery, domination, or slavery, we also see all kinds of problems coming from sexual immorality. The addiction patterns in pornography, promiscuity, uh, serial adultery, and unfaithfulness. These things can become your master until you become a slave to it. The next verse, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both, one and the other. What's he saying there? They're saying, hey... I, what do you do when you get hungry? McDonald's, right? What do you do when you get hungry? You eat. All right. What do you do when your body craves a physical relationship? They're saying, hey, this is the way it works in the body. It's just a, a physical thing. It's a recreational thing. When I'm hungry, I just go get something to eat. If I, if I feel the need to have a, a, an intimate relationship physically with someone, temple prostitutes on every street corner, I can go here, there, and I can go get this need met. It seems at a place that he's talking about food, but he's not. They lived in their bodies as we do ours. We, get, we go hungry, we get food. No problem. You're hungry, you eat. You have other appetites, an appetite or a drive for sexual relationships. And so you just go and... Go find a a way to appease it. After all, he says in the next part of that phrase, the Lord's going to destroy them both in the end. These bodies are just temporary, right? They don't really matter. God will destroy both one and the other. But what God is telling us here through Paul's correction is, yes, you have appetites, but there are boundaries. There are parameters given by God for his glory, but there are boundaries and parameters given by God who designed you and created you for your good. You have a mouth, you have a stomach, 
bodies for food, right? Can you eat just anything? Can you eat just anything and it not have any consequences? No, there are things that you should eat, things that are good to eat. There are things that you should not eat. There are things that will kill you if you eat it or make you sick or cause permanent damage. In the same way, you can't be promiscuous or loose morally when it comes to this. Uh, the body is not for sexual immorality. There are prohibitions. And just because there is a God-given appetite and, and desire, it doesn't give you free reign. God loves us enough that he establishes boundaries. And I think this may be the most important truth you need to grasp today. At the end of that phrase, he says, the body is for the Lord, the Lord for the body. The body is for the Lord, the Lord for the body. The body is for the Lord. Remember our goal to glorify God with your body. And conversely, the Lord for the body. We honor God with our body and God cares about our bodies. We got time, right? Listen to me. Why does God care about your body? Does God care about your body? What did Scott read this morning? You are blank and blank made. Good. Fearfully and wonderfully made. We saw in 139 that God is creator and designer. If you go back to Genesis 127, you see that God made Adam's body from the dust of the earth. He made Eve's body from the rib of Adam. He crafted and designed these bodies. And then he breathed life into it. And it, it is good. Remember the recurring theme in creation? It is good. God saw that it was good, and it was good, and it was good. God cares about our bodies. But he didn't just create Adam and Eve and say, all right, now y'all just go, and, and, and I'm going to keep my hands off. God creates, get this, this is so important, and it'll change your world. God knew you from conception. He knew it was taking place in your mother's womb. And not only did he know, God was intricately involved in the process. He created you and designed you from the very first cell. He knew you before you were born. He knew what you were going to be before you were born. And he created you and he designed you from the very first cell. If you're beautiful, by the way, beauty standards change. Because when I think... I was singing in the bathroom this morning, and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and then I got to look at myself in the mirror, and I thought, well, okay. <laughs> Probably not. But, but what I want you to get, and we'll go back and look at these verses if we have time, is that God created us, and he cares about the very bodies that he created us, and our spirit, and our minds, and our emotions, and the whole of who we are. And he created not only Adam and Eve, but he created you. He created every child in the womb and every person that lives that was ever created. And he cares about their bodies. Now, I don't know where you stand on abortion, but I'm going to tell you where God stands. That the abortion is the taking of a life that he created. And so it's the sin. So that's why you know, we, 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 we're guilty of the sins of the Canaanites as a nation. We need to stand against that. We need to know it's wrong and why it's wrong. And we need to communicate that as we, as we go into culture. But when it comes to how we relate to one another in relationships, and particularly in Corinth and in our day, these things are in common. We need to recognize that God has a purpose for us. Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. God's involved in conception and development. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God's creative activity in, our, in, in the womb now. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. We could go to Acts 17. Not only God... God 
not only created all it is, he, he sustains and directs every individual life. Acts 17, Paul, when he's speaking on the Areopagus in Athens. Uh, Colossians 1.15, when it talks about the nature of who Christ is and how Christ guides the world today, it says he's the one who holds all things together. He's the one that keeps your heart beating, keeps your blood flowing, keeps your breath going in and out. For those of you who have hair, he's the one who determines the hairs on your head. Okay? He is engaged. And we need to be careful about what we do with our bodies because they are fearfully and wonderfully created and designed by an infinitely valuable creator. Now, here's, a, here's a, a point that I think is a good one to make. I looked in the mirror, and I did not feel very fearfully or wonderfully made. <laughs> but I am, and I'll tell you why. Because of who made me. Have you ever seen a, 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 these auctions sometimes of these famous painters, Monet, uh, Van Gogh, who, whoever, even Leonardo da Vinci, who did a lot more than just paint, but, but you see the, the paintings, and they're completed paintings, and they go on auction, and they sell for millions of dollars. But did you know that if you can find just their drawings on a napkin or a scrap of paper, that those things go for hundreds of thousands of dollars as well? Why? They're not refined. They're not finished like the finished product, much like I don't feel like I am in my own body. But they're valuable. Why? Because of who created them. You're valuable. Your body is valuable because you have a creator who is infinitely valuable. It's not simply that God created Adam and Eve and then just let things run on. He is involved intimately and intricately with every person. Now, we live in a culture where physical intimacy, physical intimacy is recreational and casual and people think that I can just do this because it fulfills my need just like when I get hungry and it becomes disposable and yet God places a higher value in this passage we're going to spend some time here next week just to give you a heads up God places a higher value on this type of sin because it has far-reaching implications and impact on the family on the home and on culture and in society so in a culture of sexual immorality, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We're to glorify God with our body. And the baseline here for this morning's discussion is we need to know what we believe. We need to glorify God in this because we're here to glorify God. We are His body, not our own, bought with a price. But we don't come in here, close the doors, and say, all right, you can only come in here if you think like us or you believe like us. And we don't not go out there because they may, they may damage us. You know, they're going to mess us up. We've got to be, we've got to recognize that we're to go out into the world. That we're to be salt and light. That we are to proclaim truth. That we are to live right and glorify God in our bodies before a world that does not in order that they may come to know truth. In order that they may come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves them and who gave himself for them. This Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost. This Jesus who came to convict of, of to, sent the Holy Spirit to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. We need to be people who are prepared and equipped to not simply say, flee sexual immorality. Don't do that. It's wrong. But to say, it's wrong because there's a God who loves you. There's a God who made you and fashioned you and designed you. 
There's a God who has directed your life, directed your steps. He sent truth to you. He sends people to you. There's a God who desires that you know him and know him fully and that you walk in the fullness of joy of following his design, his instruction manual, his boundaries, staying within his boundaries when it comes to these kinds of relationships. But the key first is that you know God. Do you understand that Romans chapter 1 makes it abundantly clear that the sexual sin of the day was a result of people worshiping the wrong thing. Rather than worshiping the creator, they began to worship the creature. And yet God loves us. He looked down through history and saw us. He chose us. He made us new in him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you hang with me during this series. Now, we'll tell you the last two weeks of this series, we're going to get really abundantly clear in our communication. And some of you may say, I don't want my kids to be a part of this service. I want to have that conversation with them, not you. And I want you to know that's perfectly all right. We are making provision for a children's church that will take place during the sermon part of those services as well. So that we can have the kids in one area while we come in here and we just talk clearly. Abundantly clear. Now, I would certainly hope that all of the high school students, at the very least, and up would stay in here, but even middle school students. Because there's nothing I'm going to be saying that is not in every school, in every newspaper, in every movie, in every sitcom, or in many of the sitcoms, on the TVs, or frankly, even in cartoons on Saturday mornings. And knowing what the scripture says and how to address it, I think, is going to be very important. But what we celebrate today primarily is not only that God has a plan for us, but that we have become a part of that plan. When we came to him in repentance and faith, all we like sheep had gone astray. We'd gone every man to his own way. And the world has become a place drastically in need of the clear grace of God. And God's display of grace is most predominantly shown to the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the wonder of the redemptive work of God. God made him who knew no sin, Christ Jesus, who, born of a virgin, lived some 33 years on this earth without one sin. He never thought the wrong thing. He was never dominated or mastered by the wrong thing. He never said or did anything with his body that transgressed the law of God. He completely fulfilled the righteousness of God in his body. And yet, he paid the penalty for sin, just not his. He paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. All sin has a penalty. And Christ took the wrath of God against sin on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. Why? So that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. 